Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are finishing up our series this morning that I've entitled A Crisis of Biblical Proportions. And in doing it, we are going to look at a different type of crisis. Everyone we have looked at so far in this series has been a physical crisis. Though, of course, we could say in the crisis of Jesus, it was both physical, emotional, and spiritual. But today's crisis is strictly a spiritual crisis. There is no physical suffering going on. There is no persecution happening in this particular story. And so at first glance, you might conclude that this is not as serious as the other scenarios we've looked at, but the truth is actually the opposite. Jesus said on one occasion, do not fear those who can only kill the body, but fear the one who can kill both body and soul. We make the claim that our spiritual life, that is our salvation, our eternity, is the most important aspect of our lives. And if that is true, if it's more than just a claim and it is reality, then a spiritual crisis is indeed a serious attack. One that might result in us believing a false gospel and therefore going uh, way off track. That such attacks continue to this day are beyond question. And in fact, they are so numerous and at times often subtle that we don't even recognize them. Like Pearl Harbor, which we remembered this past week, 79 years ago. A sudden and surprise attack. We didn't know it was coming until we saw the devastation. And that is sometimes the case when it comes to spiritual attacks. The easy ones to spot are those that deny the deity of Christ or some other foundational element of our faith. But the more subtle ones will come quoting scripture and sounding very realistic and yet adding something to salvation. They will come and often say that sure it's by grace through faith, but that's not enough. There is something else that must be added. And as we'll see this morning, this is nothing new. It has been going on since the inception of Christianity and has reared its ugly head in one way or another in every generation since. Often these heresies reappear with a new name, but they're the same old heresy. But since many of us do not know our Christian history, it is easy to fall for them all over again in spite of the fact that they've been addressed in Christian history, they've been rebuked as false teaching, and yet we don't know it. And so today we examine the first council in Christian history. We call it the Jerusalem Council, obviously because it was held in Jerusalem, and it is found in Acts chapter 15. A dispute had arisen between Paul and some of his associates on the one side and some other men that we often call Judaizers on the other side. This term Judaizers is a term we use for those professing Christians who also want to add Jewish elements in order to be saved. The particular issue that we're going to look at is especially serious 
because it hits at the foundation of what the gospel is all about. And it occurred very early in church history, which means it had the potential to derail the genuine gospel really before it ever got firmly established. So this morning we are looking at a crisis of the gospel. Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Saul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, I know that's a lot of verses. There's more that I could read, but I'm going to just summarize that later. And we are going to start with a crisis in Antioch. Chapters 13 and 14 of Acts describe what we call the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. A missionary journey that began in the church in Antioch and ended in the church in Antioch. And you will remember that it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. There are actually two Antiochs in the New Testament. But the one we're talking about is a city to which some of the Jews fled when they were persecuted. 
It is also a city in which, to which many Jewish Christians fled after the stoning of Stephen. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. Obviously, the largest city was Rome itself. The second largest city was Alexandria in Egypt, a city that we said last week was in all likelihood the city to which Jesus fled with his family. But we are in Antioch in Syria, nearly 300 miles away from Jerusalem. So there are both Jews and Gentiles in the city, and there are both Jews and Gentile believers in the church. Now we know that Peter was convinced of the Gentile mission through a vision that God gave him. He saw unclean food, and God said, do not call unclean what I have called clean. We know that Paul and Barnabas are convinced of the Gentile mission because they've been sent out by the Antioch church and they have come back from their journey, which was largely to Gentiles rejoicing in what God through the spirit had done. They knew they were called and converted and they knew that God was doing the same thing among the Gentiles in the various cities that they went to. But even Peter had his doubts and at one point had to be confronted by Paul because of the way he was acting. So we can well imagine what the others must have been th thinking. What are the other apostles, what are the other leaders in the early church thinking about the Gentiles and what they must do in order to be saved? Or what is the average church member in Antioch or any of the churches? What are their thoughts about what a Gentile must do in order to be saved? We can well imagine that if the apostles are in some discussion about it, that the average church member was often confused about it. And that certainly could be said consistently today. Yes, even in evangelical churches like our own, there is much confusion when it comes to what is the gospel and what must I do in order to be saved. Now, in this case, the nature of this crisis is spelled out very clearly for us. We do not have to guess, for we are told. Verse 1, some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching that Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And again, we call them Judaizers because they're trying to add Jewish elements in order for Gentiles to be saved. Now, we know that God had commanded circumcision for Jewish males as a sign of the covenant relationship that they had with him. But it was never intended nor commanded by God as a guarantee of salvation. That is, it was not a means of salvation. In fact, Paul himself said on another occasion that not everybody who is a child of Abraham is actually a child of God. In other words, he's saying just because someone is Jewish doesn't mean that they're right with God. Even though someone might be circumcised, it does not mean that they have a right relationship with God. So do the Gentiles need to have this sign in order to have any chance at a relationship with God? Now, obviously, we do not deal with this specific issue anymore, at least as it pertains to circumcision, but we do still face it. It is heard in many different ways. I'll just give you one. It is heard in those that teach that baptism is necessary for salvation, what we often call baptismal regeneration. That is, you cannot be saved. There are churches, there are denominations that teach this. You cannot be saved unless you are baptized. Now, of course, you know as Baptists, 
we are, we are serious about baptism. We understand that not only are you to be baptized in order to join the church, but you are to be baptized by immersion. That's why we, get, we got the name Baptist. But we do not believe that baptism saves. After all, the thief on the cross certainly was not baptized. And yet Jesus told him, today you will be with me in paradise. We believe it is an important step of obedience after salvation, but we believe that Jesus alone saves. So when I talk to children about baptism, I often ask them this question. I talk to them about the baptistry and I say, do you know where we get our water in the baptistry? And that's a confusing question to them. They almost never know how to answer me. And so I have to answer myself. And I say, the water in our baptistry comes from the same place, if you live in this area, it comes from the same place that your water in the bathtub at home comes from. That is, we get it from Hallsdale Powell, just like you get your water at home. And my point is simply that there is nothing magical about the water in the baptistry. There is nothing there that saves. It is symbolic of the fact that Christ has saved and we are identifying publicly in our relationship with Christ by being buried with Jesus by baptism and then rising again to live a new life. So we do not believe that baptism saves and it's the same kind of argument that these individuals were making here in Acts chapter 15. But they were doing it with much more than the sign of the covenant. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says that they were teaching that Gentiles had to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. So we are clearly, if circumcision wasn't enough, and it was, we are clearly now over into the realm of works salvation. Again, the issue is not whether Gentiles can be saved. The question is, how are they saved? Was it by grace through faith, or must they be circumcised and keep the law of Moses? Now, this too is a popular addition today with any number of man-made laws insisted upon for salvation. Now, please hear this distinction. We are not saying that because we are saved apart from works, that works or the law no longer matter. That is what is called antinomianism. That is against the law. There are people who teach that the law no longer has any bearing on the Christian because we are not saved by works. Legalism is the opposite extreme, a word you're probably more familiar with. It is the idea that you must keep the law in order to be saved, which is exactly what these folks were teaching. Now, neither of these is a good option, and both are very dangerous, legalism and antinomianism. Instead, we believe that we're saved by grace through faith and that works then follow as a natural result or what we might call fruit of our salvation. And this is such a subtle but significant distinction that leaves many trying hard to work their way to heaven while others trample upon grace and do nothing, leaving many just like those in Antioch, confused. Now, if you still have your Bibles open, let's look down at verse 24. We didn't read this verse, but I want to call your attention to it now. Verse 24. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. That is, they are confused. And you may find yourself troubled and confused over all of this. 
Your mind having a hard time making the distinction between what is the true gospel and that which is false. Or you might think that you've got it all figured out and you don't realize that maybe you have embraced a false gospel because it is so subtle. It's like COVID. And you know, nowadays we have to use that word at least once in every sermon. It's mandatory for preaching that we use the word COVID. So just like COVID, you can have the virus and not know you have it. And because you have it and don't know it, you can spread it without even intending to spread it. And it's like uh, the false gospels that are going around. Wrong ways of salvation. You can embrace it without even realizing it. And thus you can spread it without even intending to. Which is why this is such a spiritual crisis. Why this is such a serious crisis. Not only in Antioch in the first century, but in America and in Tennessee in this century. All right, so how are we going to solve this crisis? There is a crisis brewing in Antioch that continues to brew in every city around the world where the gospel is proclaimed. How are they going to solve this? Well, they're going to solve it with a council at Jerusalem. So Paul and Barnabas and some others start the roughly month-long trip, the 300 miles, to go to Jerusalem. And even though they're going south geographically... It says they went up because Jerusalem is of higher elevation. So the Bible always speaks of going up to Jerusalem. But before we get to the council, I want you to notice that they do not waste their journey. Even though this is a serious issue and urgently needs to be dealt with, they are ministering along the way. And verse 3 says that as they're going through these cities on their way to Jerusalem, they brought great joy to all the brothers. It is certainly a difficult lesson for us to learn and one that we often forget. We don't need to get so busy with our plans and making sure we're accomplishing all that we want to accomplish, even if it's good, that we don't have the time to minister to people along the way. But when they arrive in Jerusalem, they are greeted and the council begins. There are three speeches. Peter opens up the discussion with the first speech. And he goes back to the vision that I mentioned earlier, which is recorded for us in Acts chapter 10. And though it had probably occurred up to about 10 years prior to Acts chapter 15, it is still vividly upon his mind, along with the conversion of Cornelius and the other Gentiles as a result. So Peter talks about how these Gentiles heard the message of salvation. They embraced that message and received the same Holy Spirit just like the Jewish believers. Verse 9, he says very clearly, there were no distinctions. They were saved just like we were saved. They were cleansed by faith just like we were. And if all of that is true, he goes on to say, why would you add any other burden in this process that has put God to the test. Did you notice the way that's phrased? That it's putting God to the test. Now we might expect it to say they're putting the Gentiles to the test. That is, are they going to live up to this, uh, these commandments? So we're putting them to the test, but that's not what he says. He says you're putting God to the test because it is God who has laid out the requirements for salvation, and those requirements do not include circumcision nor obedience to the law. So it is God who is being challenged and tested by these added requirements. Now notice also this very important element. It's, it's also in verse 10 there. 
he goes on to say that our fathers nor we have been able to keep the law. I mean, why are you telling Gentiles that they've got to keep the law of Moses when we haven't been able to do it? I mean, you don't have to be an Old Testament scholar to know that when you read the Old Testament, the Israelites failed time and time again. Over and over again, they would make a commitment to God and they would fail in that commitment. Several of the sermons in this series have been crises that the Israelites went through because God was punishing them for the fact that they were sinful. That is, they were not keeping the law. And so Peter says, if our forefathers couldn't do it and we can't do it, why are you making the Gentiles do it? I mean, Paul said of himself that he was the chief of sinners. So none of us can keep the law, which means imposing a standard of keeping the law for salvation simply isn't logical. And the same thing could be asked and answered today. Those who teach and impose some form of work salvation on others, we ought to ask them, have you perfectly kept the law? If you're trying to tell others that they must do these things in order to be saved, have you perfectly done those things? And if you say yes, then what about John's statement in his first epistle? That if we say we have no sin, we make him a liar. Often with those who teach work salvation, it is a case of selective application. And by that I mean that their work salvation includes some specific elements, certain sins to avoid and certain services to render that they themselves think that they've done pretty well at. All without making the connection that they fall woefully short in other areas that they apparently deem less important. But doesn't the Bible also say that if we break the law in one point, we are offenders of the law in all points? And so none of us can keep the law, and therefore it is not necessary in order to be saved. It works salvation is simply not a logical gospel because none of us qualify. Well, the second speech is from Paul. And if Peter's was more theological, we might say that Paul's is more experiential. That is, Paul is going to once again recount how God has worked through them and through the Spirit among the Gentiles. The very message they had shared in the cities that they traveled through that had brought great joy. But in this case, it brings silence. As we picture the audience listening with rapt attention at the tremendous and miraculous things that Paul is recounting. Proving once again that God is indeed at work, not just among the Jews, but also in the same manner among the Gentiles. And then the third speech is from James, the half-brother of Jesus, and evidently at this point, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He refers back to Peter's speech. When he says Simeon, that's another name for Peter. And he picks up on God's work among the Gentiles by appealing to an Old Testament text. If you've got a Bible that brackets the quotes, you'll, you'll see that it's bracketed or italicized. It comes from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. And the point James is making is twofold. Number one, Gentile inclusion in the kingdom of God is not a new New Testament thing. It was stated in the Old Testament as well. This is not a, a new way for God to work. It is the way God had always intended to work. Then secondly, the, this text doesn't say anything about Gentiles becoming Jews in order to be delivered nor does any other text. 
So what his point is that their teaching, that is the apostles, is in accord with what God has always done and what God predicted through the prophets. So James comes to the conclusion that it is not necessary to trouble the Gentiles, but it's really much more than that. It is not just troubling them. It is an unbiblical and false gospel to trouble the Gentiles with these added requirements. Why put an unnecessary obstacle in the way of people coming to God for salvation, especially when that obstacle is against the very gospel you're trying to get them to embrace? And here again, this is not just an issue in, first century, uh, in the first century world. How often do we sometimes expect people to clean up their lives before they can come to faith in Christ? How often do we expect, especially those of us who have been born and raised in the church, how often do we expect them to act like we act either right before salvation or immediately after? We simply assume sometimes that new believers ought to be on the sanctification spectrum at the same place that we're at, even though we've been following Christ for perhaps decades. Sometimes this is unspoken, but it is nevertheless an expectation. And this is not how it works and is totally unrealistic. I mean, it's hard enough to get people to respond to the gospel without adding unnecessary and unbiblical requirements before we encourage them to respond. Now, having said all of this, we come down to verse 20, and it is somewhat strange. I mean, if we follow the logic along the way, we wind up shaking our heads at the result that they come to in verse 20. James concludes, and the others agree, because a letter is going to be written and circulated with these statements. So they come to this agreement that they should encourage the Gentile believers to abstain from four things. Now, I am not going to dive into those four things, but I do want to talk about the reason this is now the conclusion. Because at first glance, it seems like they're merely substituting one requirement for another. Oh, the, the false teachers are saying you need to be circumcised. No, you don't need to be circumcised, but you do need to do these four things. Oh, the false teachers are saying that you need to keep the law of Moses. No, you don't have to keep the whole law of Moses, but you do have to keep these four things. And so it appears to be contradictory when we first look at it. But the key to understanding that this is not a contradiction lies in the fact that these four requirements are not in order for Gentiles to be saved. But it is an effort on the part of these leaders to break down the barriers between Jews and Gentiles. All four of these, or at least three of the four, if not all four, deal with issues of ritual purity. Something that you know the Jews were very serious about. So this council and many other New Testament texts reminds us that there was a division between Jews and Gentiles. And this barrier didn't just disappear when either side professed faith in Christ. So asking them to do these four things is a way of asking the Gentile believers to respect and abide by certain things that are dear to the hearts of Jewish believers as a way of breaking down barriers so that they can have fellowship together. Not that they can be saved, but they, so they can have fellowship. In other words, don't take your Christian freedom to the extreme, which might offend Jewish consciences or even lead them to violate their own conviction. Now, we're hearing talk again about Christian freedom. The debate is uh, anew. It's often focused these days on whether or not we should wear a mask. 
Now, I do not want to sidetrack this sermon with that debate, but I do want to say that wearing a mask or not wearing a mask does not rise to the issue of a gospel case. Now, we can talk socially about how we ought to do it. We can talk medically about how we ought to do it. But whether or not we choose to wear masks does not rise to a crisis of the gospel. You are not proving nor denying your salvation based on where you land on this subject. Now, for the sake of time, I'll summarize the outcome of this council. The text goes on to tell us in verses that we did not read that they reached unity. That is, they had begun with discord and they had come together at this council and they were unified. And so they write a letter and they send Paul and Barnabas back with this letter to take to the various churches. Now I want you to look at verse 31. In verse 31, they are now back in Antioch. And when they had read it, that is the letter, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They were encouraged by the findings. Again, we started out with a hotly contested religious debate and it has ended where it does not always end. It has ended in unity and encouragement. Well, as we conclude this sermon and even this series, we need to talk as we've tried to do all along about the deliverance. We've acknowledged that there was a crisis in Antioch and we've acknowledged that there was a council held in Jerusalem to deal with that crisis. But we've also said throughout this series that we've talked about the deliverance. So I want to end by talking about the deliverance that can be found anywhere. Meaning that false gospels are always going to be with us, whether we uh, understand them or not. And there is always going to be the opportunity for deliverance. So how do we get deliverance from a crisis of the gospel? How do we find deliverance from false gospels? Well, I have no magic bullet, bullet or unique piece of advice. What I do have is the tried and true method that you've heard before, but the fact of the matter is, it works. Deliverance from false gospels begins with a growing knowledge of the true gospel. The more we know about what the Bible says about the nature of the gospel, the easier it becomes to spot anything else that is false. I've used this illustration before, but agents who work for governments uh, in the area of counterfeit dollars are not trained by looking at a bunch of different counterfeit bills. They are trained by looking at the real currency because they know that the more they know the real currency and every single aspect of it, the easier it's going to be to spot anything that doesn't match up. And so it is true in our spiritual lives. The more we know the truth of the biblical gospel, the less chance there will be to be swayed by anything else. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that is certainly true when it comes to this area of false gospels. Added to that, we need to exercise faith. Faith in the promises of God and the truth of his gospel. We sometimes think of faith merely as the beginning point, that we are saved by grace through faith. So we know we have to exercise faith in order to be saved. But the fact of the matter is we continue to exercise faith for the rest of our lives. We walk by faith, not by sight, which means we need to consistently and continually apply God's word to our lives and to our circumstances. 
daily and consistently appropriating our faith to these ongoing circumstances, which means that even in a pandemic, we believe that God has a plan and God has a purpose and he will deliver us through these difficult days. It means even in a pandemic, we are to walk by faith, not walk in fear. Even though I acknowledge that people are afraid of the virus and its consequences, we as believers should be able to rise above that and walk in faith, though I understand that is easy to say and much harder to do. But as we conclude this series, we've been reminded that whether it's our national crises or whether it is personal crises or whether it is all of the above, we do not have to experience these difficulties alone because Christ is with us. We have seen that we're not the first to go through difficult times. We've seen in the Bible that there were much more difficult circumstances than we're going through that lasted way longer than what we have, have had to put up with. But we've seen in the process that God is faithful, faithful to deliver his people as he promised. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas, isn't it? The greatest deliverance of all time, the deliverance from sin. So after all Jesus has done for us, may we not revert back to a works-based approach to salvation. Not only is it not biblical, it simply doesn't work. It's not logical. So in closing, look at verse 11. In verse 11, this is the end of Peter's speech. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now that's the good news. The good news of the gospel is that I can't earn my way into a right relationship with God, but God in Christ has paved the way for me and for you. That's the gospel of grace. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you that uh, we do not have to earn our way because uh, our forefathers couldn't do it and we can't do it either. But thank you that we are saved by your grace through faith. And then we walk by faith, producing through your Holy Spirit works of righteousness as the fruit of what you're doing in our lives. I pray that we would always have clarity when it comes to the gospel so that we would know false gospels when we see them. Is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.